Welcome to the class of the voice of the narrated Puritan. This is a class on Christian experience and assurance continued. Today we are going to look at a question that I first got clear back in 1985 and having gone through this fear myself. Somebody believes they've committed the unpardonable sin. And in most cases they are deceived about this. This is one of the wiles of the devil that he most likes to use. So what is the unpardonable sin? Timothy Merritt, in a sermon preached March 14, 1849, says, There is not in the whole compass of Revelation a more awful subject than that of the sin which has no forgiveness. Neither in this world, neither in that which is to come, hence it should concern all who believe the Bible to understand it. G. Johnstone, a sermon from May 9th, 1858 on Matthew 12, verse 31. All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven. As often as these words, so absolute and so awful, fall upon a ear, the tender conscience forces on the lip the question, Lord, is it I? Now may God grant in his great mercy that what we may say in answer may neither mar the peace of God in the hearts of any, nor take away from anyone one of the safeguards against this fearful apostasy. It is and can be a healthy dread. Writing on Hebrews 10, 26-27, For if we sin willfully after we have received a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fire indignation, which will devour the adversaries. A.W. Pink wrote, we have now reached one of the most solemn and fear-inspiring passages to be found not only in this epistle, the epistle to the Hebrews, but in all the word of God. May the Holy Spirit fit each of our hearts to approach it in that godly trembling which becomes those who have within their own hearts the seeds of apostasy. Let it be duly considered at the outset that the verses which are now to be before us were addressed not to those who made no profession of being genuine Christians, but instead to them whom the Spirit of Truth owned as holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, Hebrew 3 verse 1. In an 1817 circular letter from the ministers and messengers of the several Baptist churches, Yorkshire and Lancashire Association, assembled at Blackburn May 28th and 29th, in an answer to what is the unpardonable sin and to relieve the fears of those who suppose they have committed it when they have not, wrote, quote, that the state of mind is often experienced by the genuine followers of Christ is evident from the various complaints of such persons recorded in Scripture, as well as those uttered by the godly in more modern times. To attempt the removal, therefore, of those scruples is an important part of the work of the Christian minister. That is my goal in this lesson, to answer some questions about this, and then to look at The Man in the Iron Cage and Pilgrim's Progress. In a book called Seven Sermons on the Unpardonable Sin Against the Holy Spirit, Robert Russell, minister of Midhurst in Sussex, England, 1821, what is the reason, then, that this sin cannot be forgiven? The reason arises from the nature of this sin, for this sin by whosoever it is committed hardens the heart and sears the conscience, so that there is no place for repentance to be wrought, neither for that nor any other sin. He must oppose a known truth willfully. He must willfully fall away 
after he has received the knowledge of the truth. Other sins are committed through infirmity, but this sin is willful. The will is the chief factor in it. And to complete and make up this unpardonable sin, there is malice in the heart. Without this, this sin cannot be committed. It must be a malicious supposing of the known truth. That is, when a man being once enlightened and having tasted of the heavenly gift and the good word of God and has been made partaker of the Holy Ghost and has had some sweet relish and foretaste of heaven, he comes to take a dislike and to hate the holy ways of God and maliciously opposes and persecutes them and despite to the spirit of grace, crucifying afresh the Son of God and putting him to an open shame. Now a man, having gone thus far, he comes in the last place to be an apostate, for thus to oppose willfully and maliciously the known truth is always joined with final and total apostasy. For he that is so far enlightened is to see the evil of sin and the excellency of Christ and holiness and has been made partaker of the Holy Ghost, of his graces and comforts and tasted of God's love and favor in Jesus Christ, and has some foretaste of the joys of the world to come, for such a one willfully, spitefully, and maliciously to fall away. He so falls as never to rise again. It is true the children of God fall in that often and rise again, but then they fall through weakness of infirmity, and not willfully and maliciously. But these wicked wretches fall willfully and maliciously, and so they fall finally away from the faith. Against such the door of mercy is forever shut. Concerning such, Peter says, it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, and after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, Second Peter 2, 21 and 22. There is a topic in Augustus Hopkins' strong systematic theology. I first discovered this clear back in 1983, when I feared that I'd committed this sin. And, and it's under the description of what he calls the sin of incomplete, and the sin of final obduracy, and this is what he said. To sin against the Holy Spirit is not to be regarded simply as an isolated act, a one-time act, but also as the external symptom of a heart so radically and finally set against God that no power which God can consistently use will ever save it. He's talking about the common influences of the Holy Spirit short of the effectual call. This sin, therefore, can only be the culmination of a long course of self-hardening and self-depraving. He who has committed it must be either profoundly indifferent to his own condition, or actively and bitterly hostile to God, so that if a person has anxiety or fear on account of one's condition, that he has committed it, it is evidence that it has not been committed. The sin against the Holy Spirit cannot be forgiven simply because the soul that has committed it has ceased to be receptive of divine influences, even when those influences are exerted in the utmost strength, which God has seen fit to employ in his spiritual administration. Julius Mueller, Doctrine of Sin 
Volume 2, page 425, it is not that divine grace has absolutely refused to anyone who, in true penitence, asks forgiveness of this sin. But he who commits it never fulfills the subjective conditions upon which forgiveness is possible. It is because the aggravation of sin to this ultimatum destroys in him all susceptibility of repentance. The way of return to God is closed against no one who does not close it against himself, end quote. There is a state of utter insensibility to emotions of love or fear, and man by his sin may reach that state. The act of blasphemy is only the expression of a hardened or a hateful heart. B. H. Payne, P-A-Y-N-E, says, quote, the calcium flame will charge the steel wire so that it is no longer affected by the magnet, as the blazing cinders and black curling smoke which the volcano spews from its rumbling throat or the accumulation of months and years, so the sin against the Holy Spirit is not a thoughtless expression in a moment of passion or rage. It is given vent to a state of heart and mind abounding in the accumulations of weeks and months of opposition to the gospel, end quote. Dr. J.P. Thompson writes, quote, The unpardonable sin is a knowing, willful, persistent, contemptuous, malignant spurting of divine truth and grace is manifested to the soul by the convincing and illuminating power of the Holy Ghost. End quote. Dorner says, quote, Therefore, the sin does not belong to Old Testament times or to the mere revelation of law. It implies a full revelation of the grace in Christ and the conscious rejection of it by a soul to which the Spirit has made it manifest, quote. According to Jonathan Edwards, there are three essential ingredients to committing the unpardonable sin. Conviction, malice, and presumption. In expressing that malice, first, a person must have some knowledge of the Holy Spirit's office and work. A person cannot commit this sin if there is no knowledge of the Holy Spirit to distinguish him from other persons. A distinct knowledge of the Holy Spirit is not necessary so much as having an understanding of though things wherein his nature and work consists. This knowledge must be attended with conviction of sin. A person must be sensible that what he or she is rejecting is from the Holy Spirit. In a word, he must revile the grace of God that he has light to know is his. Jonathan Edwards, Miscellanies, number 435. Collected Works, chapter 13, 517 to 522. A person could not commit this sin unless he or she has first been indoctrinated in Christianity and received the common illuminations and affections of the Holy Spirit. Works, volume 15, pages 70 and 71. Apostasy, therefore, could be a way in which one commits the unpardonable sin. Jonathan Edwards, Miscellanies, number 703. Volume 18, pages 309 to 14. Second, this malice must be more than just a malice toward God or toward Jesus Christ. It must be because of the Holy Spirit. Miscellanies. Jonathan Edwards, page 475. The Spirit is the one who reveals the grace, mercy, and love of God, and to commit this sin means to maliciously oppose the work of grace, mercy, and love in each of the persons of the Trinity. Third, a person has to freely and woefully malign the Holy Ghost in his office, or with respect to his gracious operations, end quote. 
Those who commit this sin do so without any restraint of fear or suggestion from Satan. This highlights the aggravated nature of the unpardonable sin. It is not a one-time offense, nor is it committed in ignorance. It is done with a rational, deliberate, full design. Miscellaneous number 380, volume 13, page 450 of the Collected Works of Jonathan Edwards. Though Edwards took pains to show the greatness or heinousness and exceeding aggravation of the sin, ultimately its ground was God's arbitrary constitution. It was God's free decision never to pardon the sin, possibly as Edwards surmises in his miscellaneous number 703. This is a quote from Stephen J. Carr, or Stephen J. Carr, in the Jonathan Edwards Encyclopedia. Jeremy Taylor Thus describes a progress of sin in a sinner. Quote, First, it startles him. Then, it becomes pleasing. Then delightful. Then frequent. Then habitual. Then confirmed. Then a man is impenitent. Then obstinate. Then he is resolved he will never repent again. And then he is damned. End quote. So let's take a look at the man in the iron cage. Now, said Christian, let me go hence. Nay, stay, said the interpreter, till I have showed you a little more. And after that, you shall go on your way. So he took him by the hand again and led him into a very dark room, where there sat a man in an iron cage. Now the man to look on seemed very sad. He sat with his eyes looking down to the ground, his hands folded together and he sighed as if it would break his heart. Then said Christian, What means this? At which the interpreter bid him talk with the man. Then said Christian to the man, What are you? The man answered, I am what I was not once. What were you once? The man said, I was once a fair and flourishing professor, both in mine own eyes and also in the eyes of others. I was once, as I thought, fair for the celestial city and had then even joy at the thoughts that I should get there. Luke verse 8 verse 13. Christian asked, Well, but what are you now? I am now a man of despair, and I am shut up in it. It's in this iron cage. I cannot get out. Oh, now I cannot. But how came you in this condition? The man in the iron cage said, I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lusts. I sinned against the light of the word and the goodness of God. I have grieved the spirit and he is gone. I tempted the devil and he has come to me. I provoked God to anger and he has left me. I so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Then said Christian to the interpreter, But is there no hope for such a man as this? Ask him, said the interpreter. Nay, said Christian, pray, Sir, you ask him. So the interpreter, said. They're asked, Is there no hope but you must be kept in the iron cage of despair? And the man said, No, not at all. The interpreter said, Why, the son of the blessed is a very pitiful man. And the man in the iron cage said, I've crucified him to myself afresh, Hebrews 6, 6. I've despised his person, Luke 19, verse 14. I've despised his righteousness. I've counted his blood an unholy thing. I have done despite to the spirit of grace, therefore I have shut myself out of all of the promises, and there now remains to me nothing but threatenings. 
dreadful threatening, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour me as an adversary. And the interpreter asked, For what did you bring yourself into this condition? And a man in the iron cage said, For the lusts, pleasures, and profits of this world, in the enjoyment of which I did then promise myself much delight. But now every one of those things also bite me, and gnaw me like a burning worm. But you cannot now repent and turn? And the man said, God has denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, he himself has shut me up in this iron cage, nor can all the men in the world let me out. Oh, eternity, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? Then said the interpreter to Christian, Let this man's misery be remembered by you, and be an everlasting caution to you. Well, said Christian, this is fearful. God help me to watch and be sober and to pray that I may shun the cause of this man's misery. Sir, is it not time for me to go on my way now? Quote. Well, those who know the biography of John Bunyan know that this story of the Italian lawyer Francis Byra, uh, he's taken it from this history, quote, it all began in May 1548 when an Italian Protestant named Francesco Spira recanted. He had been denounced to the Inquisition the previous November, and fearful he would lose his wealth and beggar his family. He renounced Protestantism publicly both at St. Mark's in Venice and in his hometown of Cittadella, near Padua. It was a painful decision. Even before his second recantation, he began to hear a voice warning him not to apostatize. And I'm just going to say, Francis Spira heard a voice from heaven. Jesus is talking to him from heaven. That's the concern I've had about this whole story, but let me just go on. And soon after it, the voice returned, admonishing him for denying God and sentencing him to eternal damnation. Convinced that he had been forsaken by the Lord, Spira fell into despair. He removed with his family to Padua, where his woeful condition quickly came to the attention of prominent theologians. There's a very good commentary on this in a book called Spiritual Desertion. It's by Voetius and Johannes Hornbeek. came out in the year 1659. This is what he says on Spira's case. As Spira's despair deepened, he was consoled by these eminent scholars and by as many as 30 other men. He suffered terribly, refusing food and rejecting their attempts to persuade him that he was not damned. The days and weeks passed, he maintained his conviction that God had forsaken him. He argued brilliantly with his learned visitors, displaying a remarkable grasp of scripture and theology, which he deployed to prove his own damnation. He declared that he had committed a sin against the Holy Ghost, the single fault that places one beyond the Lord's mercy. Spira, driven by temporal concerns, a retaining of honor and possessions against all admonition and warning from his conscience, renounced his faith in Venice in the year 1548 to the papal legate, John Casa. After this, Spira was so distressed in his soul that he had to wrestle with the most terrible trials. Because of these trials, which are seldom encountered in such a degree by any other person, he became a pitiable example of apostasy and abandonment to the whole world. After he had denied the truth in Venice and persisted in that after his return to the city where he lived, 
God gripped him in his conscience, and from that hour of his life his poor soul was most severely distressed and anguished in a most lamentable manner by all kinds of trials. Virgurius testifies that Francis Spira lived without hope. He did want to return to God, but thought that he could not do so. We silently passed by the judgment that others had pronounced on the basis of his burning desire and his heartfelt longing for God and his grace, longing that he frequently displayed. We consider ourselves duty-bound to suspend our judgment, if not to speak in his favor. He frequently gave expression to that heartfelt longing as when he sighed, quoting, that I, if only for a moment, might feel God's love in me to the same extent that I now feel him to be my bitter enemy, end quote. This is how it is. I cannot believe you people are entrust myself to God's grace. I wish that I could do it, and therefore, if I can say that I do not wish it completely, I would wish that I could entrust myself to God, but I cannot. And therefore, I cannot say I wish. On another occasion, he said, I tell you again, if I could only feel and experience one drop of God's grace, that God was reconciled to me, the least evidence would be sufficient, and I would not refuse to undergo a thousand and more years of hellish punishment, end quote. At the insistence of Virgurius, Francis proceeded to pray. Already with the first words, our Father who art in heaven, he burst into tears so that he had to stop. When the bystanders pointed out that this was a good sign, he answered, I limit my misery because I see that I have been abandoned by God, and I cannot call upon him as ardently as I used to do. Virgurius's request, he continued to pray, and when he came to the words, Thy kingdom come, he said, O Lord, bring me also into this kingdom. I pray to you, do not shut me out. And when he spoke in the fourth petition, Give us our daily bread, he added, O Lord, I have sufficient abundance to feed this body. But there is another bread. I humbly pray for this bread of your grace, for I know that without this bread I am a dead person. Virgurius said, Praise to God, Francis, you sigh and you pray with a heartfelt longing to find grace, and it has certainly proved that you are not completely rejected. Spire answered, The faith in that trust or gifts of God and that is precisely what I am lacking. I cannot hope or trust God's grace and mercy toward me. If God would only give me one thing, that I would have hope in my forgiveness and could believe in it. Another author tells about Spire and that he said, Oh, that my state was righteous. If I, through the favor of divine providence, were restored to the state of grace, that I would scorn the threats of tyrants, bear all torments with a great and unconquerable spirit, and gladly convey Christ in my mouth, eye, and heart, until the flames took away my spirit and my body was reduced to dust and ashes. There were also those who based their judgment on that which Spire formerly experienced in his heart. Spire therefore testified in reference to his earlier state. I knew God as my Father not only because of creation, but also because of regeneration. I knew him through his Son, our Savior. I was able to call on him and dare to hope for the forgiveness of sins. I felt a sweet peace and comfort in my heart. At that time, Spire considered all of that hypocrisy, for he knew that a true believer as a genuine convert cannot completely fall away. However, with a sick person, we do not base our judgment so much on what he says as on what we observe in him. And I'd say the same as the interpreter and Christian asked a man in the iron cage. 
A person who is under that kind of fear that they have committed the unpardonable sin are not in the proper condition to rightly assess their case are always going to describe it as more hopeless than in fact it is. But I go on. It is therefore on the basis of these evidences, sighs, and appearances that we saw on Spira that we do not dare to pass later adverse judgment on him. Although one cannot deny that he was a frightening example and frequently showed himself as a despairing and condemned person, in quote, Johannes Hornbeek. William Perkins says, Often it will fall out that the conscience of God's child shall be so exceedingly tormented in temptation that he shall cry out, that he is forsaken of God and shall be damned, when, as indeed, he still remains a dear child of God. As Christ our Savior did God's well beloved in the deepest assaults of Satan. And therefore the relation published of Francis Byra, his desperation, does inconsiderately tax him for a castaway, considering that nothing befell him in the time of his desperation but that which may befall the child of God. Yea, our own land can afford many examples which match the case of Francis Byra. Whether we regard the manner of his temptation or the deepness of his desperation, who yet through the mercy of God have received comfort, and therefore in this case Christian charity must ever bind us to think and speak the best. That which is written to Francis Pyra, says William Perkins, to continue, that he was a reprobate and a castaway, was penned very inconsiderately, though he affirmed the same of himself, for there did nothing befall him which may not befall a child of God. For we see that our Savior Christ himself was tempted to the greatest measure that might be. And we have daily experience from time to time that some of the dear children of God have been in like sort assaulted to despair for a time, to think themselves reprobates and castaways, yet it has pleased the Lord in time to restore them to the feeling of his love, and they have continued the faithful servants of God till their dying day, William Perkins, 1558-1602. to this is from Satan's Sophistry, answered by our Savior Jesus Christ, published in 1604. There was a book that was written called Trodden Down Strength, by the God of Strength, or Mrs. Drake Revived, showing her remarkable and rare case, great and many uncouth afflictions for ten years together. By the way, you can find Deborah Hewitt's testimony online. And I know for one place that you can find it, it is under, under the name William Allen at prdl.org. So let me quote from John Hart. The persuasive cause of the procuring of Mr. Hooker, this is Thomas Hooker, services at Escher, was the condition of Mr. Drake's wife. So Thomas Hooker had just really gotten out of college. He was just starting his preparation for the ministry, but because Thomas Hooker had gone under such deep distresses of conscience himself, and he was very much a logician, he was very, very helpful in logically anal- analyzing her case. But it says, the story is told in a little volume printed the year Thomas Hooker died. It bears a characteristically quaint title of the time, Trodden Down Strength, by the God of Strength or Mrs. Drake, revived, showing her strange and rare case, great and manifold afflictions for ten years together, related by her friend Hard on High, London, 1647. 
Mrs. Drake was an invalid and a hypochondriac. She had already worn out the consolations of two worthy ministers, Reverend Mr. Dodd. His efforts to persuade her that she had not committed the unpardonable sin, so first there was a Mr. Dodd who went to reason with her and didn't get any ground. Mr. John Dodd, being obliged to leave her after three years wrestling with her case, tidings came to Mr. Drake of one Thomas Hooker then at Cambridge, now in New England, a great scholar, an acute disputant, a strong learned, a wise, modest man, every way rarely qualified, who, being a nonconformist in judgment, not willing to trouble himself with luxurious living, was contented and persuaded by Mr. Dodd to accept of that poor living, in other words, he came to live with Mr. Dodd. This worthy man accepted of the place, having with all his diet and lodging at Esther, Mr. Drake's house. Mr. Hooker's ministration seemed to have been useful, for Mr. Hooker, being newly come from the university, had a new answering method in which she was marvelously delighted. Just how long or precisely at what date these ministrations were rendered is not stated. But the period came when Mrs. Drake felt that her time on earth was but of a small continuance, about which time it fell out that Thomas Hooker also having acted his part with her and done his best to comfort, uphold, and rectify her spirit. By God's providence, he was married to her waiting woman, after which both of them, having lived some time after with her, and he called to be lecturer at Chelmsford and Essex, they both left her. It is pleasant to be assured that the counsels of Thomas Hooker and of Mr. Dodd, which were again renewed, did much help to help Sarah Drake, and she was more cheerful in mind for a number of years, coming indeed to her end at last in a fit of sudden, extreme, ravishing, unsupportable joy, beyond the strength of mortality to retain, or be long capable of, which put Mr. Dodd, her husband, and all of them to a nonplus as being beyond all experience, say, in all their lifetime, never having seen or heard of the like. End quote. By the way, if you check chapter 4 of Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, there is mention of a Roger Glover in Fox's Book of Martyrs that for five years was under this kind of duress and fear that he was under the wrath of God, but when he was delivered, there was such a great delivery, that he appeared for the rest of his days as one already in heaven. In the solemn passage, now let's examine Hebrews 10.28, the apostle is pointing out the sure and certain connection there is between apostasy and irrevocable damnation, thereby warning all who bear the name of Christ to take the most careful and constant pains in avoiding that unpardonable sin. To say that real Christians need no such warning because they cannot possibly commit that sin is, we repeat, to lose sight of the connection which God himself has established between his predestined ends and the means in which they are reached. The end to which God had predestined his people is their eternal bliss in heaven. And one of the means by which that end is reached is through their taking heed to the solemn warning. It is given against that which would prevent their reaching heaven. It is not wisdom but madness to scoff at those warnings. As well might Joseph have objected that there was no need for him and his family to flee into Egypt. Matthew 2. Seeing that it was impossible for the Christ child to be slain by Herod, what each of us needs to watch against is the first buddings of apostasy, the first steps which lead to that sin of sins. It is not reached at a single bound, but is the final culmination of a diseased heart. Thus, 
While the writer and the reader may be in no immediate danger of apostasy itself, we are of that which, if allowed and continued in, would certainly lead to it. A man who is now enjoying good health has no immediate danger of dying from tuberculosis. Yet, if he recklessly exposed himself to the wet and cold, if he refrained from taking that nourishing food which supplies strength to resist disease, or had he a heavy cough on the chest and made no effort to break it up, then would he very likely fall a victim to consumption. So it is spiritually, nay, in the case of the Christian, the seed of eternal death is already in him. That seed is sin. And it is only as grace is daily and diligently sought for the thwarting of its inclinations and suppressing of its activities that it is hindered from fully developing to a fatal end. A small leak neglected will sink a ship just as effectually as the most boisterous sea. So one sin indulged in and not repented of will terminate in eternal punishment. Well, did John Owen say, quote, We ought to take heed of every neglect of the person of Christ and of his authority, lest we enter into some degree or other of the guilt of this great offense, end quote. Or still better, well, may both writer and reader earnestly cry to God, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins, let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Psalm 19, verse 13. All around us are professing Christians sinning with a high hand against God and yet suffering from no qualms of conscience. And why? Because while they believe that some millennial crown or reward may be forfeited should they fail to deny themselves and take daily up their cross and follow Christ, they do not have the slightest realization or fear that they are hastening to hell as swiftly as time wings its flight. End quote, A.W. Pink and his commentary on Hebrews. 1026 and following. Often when I have discussed this subject with professing Christians in the past, I usually sometimes will quote something from directions to Christians who are afflicted with melancholy, especially spiritual melancholy. So let me close this out by quoting John Calhoun and his Treatise on Spiritual Comfort 1814, Directions to Christians Who Are Afflicted with Melancholy. As well, those who are under the delusion that they have committed the unpardonable sin because we're taking A.H. Strong's definition that anxiety on the case of somebody who fears he's committed the unpardonable sin is proof that he hasn't because it shows that the Holy Spirit is still striving with him. And Colhoun says, if the disease, religious melancholy, is proceeded far, or become strong, directions to those Christians themselves are commonly to little purpose. In other words, you give them directions, you give them counsel, and they cannot listen because their minds are so weakened that they cannot comply with them. But because in some, especially when the distemper has but lately begun to seethe them, there is some power of understanding and of reason still remaining. I shall offer them the following directions and advices. Endeavor to understand well the covenant of grace. Study, without delay, to attain just and clear views of the infinite riches, suitableness, and freeness of the grace of that everlasting covenant. The better you understand and the more you think of that wonderful contract in which complete salvation is purchased, promised, and sure to you, 
to more under the consoling influences of the Spirit of Grace, where your souls be sustained and your tempers be sweetened. Think as often of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as of your own sinfulness, as often of his fullness of grace as of your own emptiness of grace, and as frequently of the boundless love, grace, and mercy of your covenant God as of his majesty, holiness, and justice. The way to diminish and even overcome those terrors which arise from partial and false apprehensions of God is to attain spiritual clear and enlarged views of him as a God whose glory it is to be merciful and gracious even to the chief of sinners, and who will certainly show mercy to them who unfeignedly desire to honor him, and to be eternal debtors to his redeeming grace for all their salvation. Let your thoughts also dwell on these cheering truths that the Lord Jesus has, according to that well-ordered and sure covenant, given such an infinite satisfaction to divine justice for your sins, as secures you from eternal death, that he has performed such a perfect obedience to the divine laws, marries for you eternal life, and that life eternal is to you the infinite free gift of God. Be fully persuaded that the incarnate Redeemer, with his righteousness and fullness, is in the gospel offered to you as sinners of mankind. Constantly believe not only that he is able and willing to save you, but that by his eternal Father and himself he is freely, holy, and particularly offered to you. Believe cordially the record that God gives to you eternal life, and that life is in his Son. Consider that it is not your sin, but your duty always to believe that to you in particular, he gives an offer, his son, with righteousness and life eternal in him. And that it is not your sin, but your duty likewise to believe that the Father's authentic offer of him to you affords you a warrant presently to confide in him for salvation to yourselves, or to trust that he saves and will continue to save you. Well, I was kind of limited in the things that I quoted where a refutation is made of those people who are under the fear they have committed the unpardonable sin. Well, I would also recommend the book by William Guthrie, A Trial of a Saving Interest, has a chapter in there about what the unpardonable sin is and what it is not. And also, in William Gurnall's Christian and Complete Armor, uh, Satan's wiles to accuse and vex a saint. In uh, William Googe's commentary on Hebrews, which I believe is being reprinted, that's about a 700-some page book, a tenth of that, is to examine the idea of what the unpardonable sin is. But it isn't in print. I haven't narrated it. I've only taken a look at it. But you can tell on any kind of works of Christian casuistry any kind of work of cases and conscience that the Puritans have done, it seems like they have to take up this subject because so many people are under the delusion that they have committed this sin. So powerful a while of the devil is this because if he can make you despair, he's got you under his wing. Because if you have despaired of salvation, until you once again have a hope, and hope is a gift of the Holy Spirit in repentance. He knows if he can cause you to despair, he has you where he wants you. You will be no threat at all to his kingdom.
Well, thank you for tuning into this podcast on Christian Experience and Assurance. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. Thank you for tuning in.